Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. thought she was introducing the wrong person. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Chuck. <clears throat> Linda says she'd get her car washed if I would mention her name. <clears throat> Robert said he'd pay for it if I mentioned his. <clears throat> so we got that out of the way. <clears throat> I was thrilled when I walked in the dining room and saw my dear friend's uh, Sue and Earl from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, they belonged to my Wednesday night home group in Laguna Beach, and Earl had grown a, must, a beard, and I, I almost didn't recognize him. I recognized Sue, but I didn't recognize him. I thought she was playing around on him or something. <laughs> Before I forget, your leader had a, uh, an announcement to make, and she asked me to make it. She forgot, in case of a fire or a earthquake, or any other emergency, would the Al-Anon stay seated until the alcoholics are safely <laughs> out of the building? <clears throat> in, all, uh, in all honesty, I was, I was at a business meeting a while back, and the guy was, the man that was there was trying to show us how something could have a bad feature and a good feature at the same time. And he told a story about coming home. He lived in Dearborn, Michigan, and he was telling that he came home one evening from a trip and it was snowing rather badly. <clears throat> and he walked in the door and his wife reminded him because he said he'd just like to take a shower and go to bed. And she said, we can't, you can't do that. We have this big dinner party tonight. And when he told this story, I thought about Al-Anon ladies immediately. And she said, I'll tell you what, you go on up and shower and get dressed, and I'll finish up, and I'll bring the car out of the garage up into the a carport, and uh, we'll be ready to go. So he changed clothes and uh, came down, and she was standing next to the car, and she had locked the keys in it. And he looked at her, and he said, I do not know how God made you so beautiful and so stupid. And she looked at him and he, she said, God made me beautiful so you would love me and stupid so I could love you. <clears throat> I bring you, uh, bring you greetings from the People's Republic of Orange County. And speaking of Orange County, I wanted to share something we just did. We, we started a hotline in Orange County a few months ago. And it's called the Psychiatric Hotline. And we have a recording and it says, Hello, welcome to the Psychiatric Hotline. If you are obsessive compulsive, please press 1 repeatedly. <laughs> if you are codependent, please ask someone to press 2. If you have multiple personalities, please press 3, 4, 5, and 6. If you are paranoid, delusional, we know who you are and what you want. Just stay on the line until we can trace the call. 
If you are schizophrenic, listen carefully and a little voice will tell you which number to press. <laughs> and if you are manic depressive, it doesn't matter which number you press, no one will answer. <laughs> and uh, that seems to work for some of us down there. I would like to welcome the newcomers, the ones that are new, the new person we have tonight, and those that are relatively new. And if you are new and you're wondering if you're in the wrong place tonight in this room, let me assure you I would rather be here tonight by mistake than sitting in some bar by mistake. And if you will continue to come here and do the things that are suggested by those who have come before you, such as read the book, go to meetings, talk to other alcoholics, and lately I've added try not to drink between meetings. I truly believe we forget to tell people this is a non-drinking society, <clears throat> and it works better. And if you do those things, I can't guarantee you that Alcoholics Anonymous will open the gates of heaven and let you in, but it will open the gates of hell and let you out. And that's all I was looking for when I got here, and I didn't know it. And there's very little I can assure you tonight, but I can assure you one thing. If this is your first meeting or first few meetings and you've been around a little while and you go back out and you drink again, it'll be you you may not have had your last drink, but you've enjoyed your last drink. And you may as well just stay here and get it over with. <laughs> I don't know if anybody in this beautiful country comes here on a court card, but if you do, I hope that you will Look at that court card, not as a punishment, but as a gift certificate. Because somebody thought enough of you, more so than you do yourself, to allow you to come to the only place that they know that you might hear something and it will save your life. I have seen so many people come here against their permission and are able to stay here. I'm happy to see the hearing impaired here tonight. My mother was hearing impaired, and, and you have a very special spot in my heart. Tonight I'm supposed to share with you what it used to be like, what happened, and why it hasn't changed a hell of a lot. <laughs> I was born sober. <laughs> into a Southern Baptist family. My grandmother passed away when I was about 12, and when she passed away, I was taken in by a Jewish Orthodox family, and they sent me to a Catholic military school. <laughs> now, until I got here, I had prayed to whom it may concern all my life. <laughs> but that's not the reason I became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I drank too much, too often, too long. And I like to make that very clear for me tonight because I have seen a lot of people come here and stay a short while and then they want to blame somebody else because of their alcoholism and they go join another outfit and they never make it back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I never want to forget the very first drink that I ever took. I had already finished school and I was home on leave from the Air Force and I'd gone to a theater, and it was late, 
But on my way home that night, I stopped at a private club my family belonged to. And I went in and I sat down and I ordered a bottle of beer. Now, the bartender that was on duty that particular night had known me all my life. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Charles, have you started drinking since you left home? And I said, no, John, I've never had a drink in my life, but tonight I'm just going to have one bottle of beer. And he gave me a Miller's High Life, and I picked it up and I drank it as fast as I possibly could because I was afraid somebody would come in and catch me drinking. Now, the reason I need to remember that drink that night so vividly tonight, sitting at that bar, I had no marital problems. I wasn't even married. (laughs) I had no job problems because I was doing exactly what I had wanted to do ever since I was a teenager, and I'd gone to one of the best military schools in the world to get ready for it. And I had no financial problems, and for no reason whatsoever, I sat there that night and I blew almost 22 years of total sobriety. And I know standing here tonight, I could do that same thing all over again. Because it's not when everything is coming down on me that I have the fear of drinking again. It's when everything seems to be going okay. It's when she's okay and the kids are okay and the job and work is okay. And I get that stinking thinking that just maybe that last drunk wasn't quite that bad. Alcoholics can handle impending doom. We just can't handle impending good. So I have to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous almost on a daily basis. Now, I know as long as I have been drink, uh, sober, I only need one meeting a week. I know that intellectually. My problem is I don't know which one it is. And I would hate to pick the wrong meeting and end up drunk. Because I found out that I can never be so sober so long I'll never drink, but I can drink so long I can never get sober again. So I have to stay close to, active in, and a part of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a friend that lived in Oakland, and he called me one night before he moved to Nevada, and he was all upset because... A person in his group got drunk. And I said, Jim, people in groups get drunk every day. He said, but this man was 42 years sober, and he got my attention. And I said, Jim, did you talk to him? And he said, I did. I said, what did he tell you? And the man's answer to my friend Jim was so profound, I always try to share it when I can. He said, Jim, I got drunk because I had too many years and not enough days in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I learned that I have to stay close to, active in, and a part of this fellowship. All of a sudden in my area, and I don't know about here, but we have people going back out after many years of being in Alcoholics Anonymous or being sober or whatever you want, dry, whatever. And I started thinking about what my sponsor said to me when I was only a few months sober one night. I found myself with him alone in a coffee shop, and normally in those days we were in an entourage. And evidently he must have been speaking somewhere as I went with him. And we were sitting there, and 
Frank said to me, he said, Chuck, he said, I want to share something with you that was shared with me. He said, we suffer from alcoholism. To drink is to die, and of myself I cannot stay sober. And alcoholism is an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind and a spiritual void. Now, I am so grateful that he did not tell me that night that alcoholism was a disease. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying I'm glad he didn't tell me it was that night. He explained it as an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind and a spiritual void. He said, you have not had a drink for a while, <clears throat> whether it be a week or a day or a month, and you are detoxified, and you no longer have an allergy of the body. Therefore, and he liked to use the word therefore because he's a lawyer and he can charge you more. <laughs> therefore, the next drink that you will ever take after tonight will be right here. You will think your next drink. And if you're not close to active in and a part of this fellowship, it may take a week or a month or six months, but you will eventually <clears throat> take that second drink, and that's the one that will be poured, and you'll put it up to your mouth, and you'll swallow it. And that will set off the allergy of the body all over again. And then there's that third thing that we don't think about too much. And it usually occurs between five years and ten years for some reason. We get complacent. And we start complaining about the meetings and the secretary and the speakers and the coffee and whatever. And we start moving around to other meetings and pretty soon we move ourselves right out of Alcoholics Anonymous because what's happening is we have that spiritual void that alcohol used to take care of. And we don't take care of it and there's no place for us to go because we cannot accept the concept of the spirituality of this fellowship. I go to these rooms on a daily basis now. And I have looked at these rooms that I go into like my big fort. And the people that go out and drink again are my scouts. And those scouts keep running back in my fort with an ass full of arrows saying those Indians are still out there. <laughs> and for those reasons, I have to stay close to active in and a part of this fellowship too. With all of these people going back out, it concerned me because some of them were near and dear to me. And I come to find out that a lot of people that come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they learn the program very well. They learn the steps, they learn the traditions, they learn the principles, but what they quit doing is practicing those things. And for us to practice like a doctor and a lawyer and anybody else is professional is to practice to try to become a master at what we do. And the only mastering we can do is to be sober today. And we have 12 steps, and I truly believe that the only way that I could come here and become sober and happy, and I emphasize the happy part of being sober because there's a lot of people out there tonight that are 
20, 30, 40 years sober that I don't want anything they've got because they're stark raving sober. And in order for me to be sober and happy, I have got to take all of the 12 steps. And in order to stay sober and happy, I have to practice that 12th step on a daily basis. And the only place I know how to practice the 12th step on a daily basis is to try to get into a meeting of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know when I took the next drink. It wasn't that night for sure, but I'm sure it was the next day or two. And when I took that second drink, it was like letting old midnight out of shoot number nine at a rodeo. And I drank myself to the better part of 15 years of my life. And I drank myself right up to what I call for me, my death march into Alcoholics Anonymous. This time of the year has a very tender significance in my life because I'm right at what is almost the anniversary of the end of my my last drunk, I hope. I locked my office door on December the 22nd to go home for Christmas and New Year's. And the next conscious thing I can remember, I was driving to my office and it was January the 5th. And I came out of that blackout and there was a red light ahead of me and I did everything I could do to stop that car and I finally did. And I turned around and I went back to my house and I went in and I took down a bottle of vodka out of the cabinet and I set it on the counter and there was a small bottle next to it filled with Valium because I had a doctor at that time that thought alcoholism was caused by Valium deficiency. (laughs) I had that same doctor, but his thinking's a lot different. And I didn't want to get hooked on those funny little pills, so I took the drink. And thank God that first drink stayed down that morning because there had been a lot of Saturday and Sundays and holidays that that first drink early in the morning didn't stay down. And my leg quit shaking, my stomach felt better, my head cleared up, and I got in my car, drove to my office, went upstairs and told my staff what a fantastic holiday I had. And I hoped that they had had one just as good. And I could not remember 15 minutes from the time I locked that office door till that day. I went to lunch that day and I had my normal lunch. I had a couple of drinks. I ate my lunch and I went back to the office. But a few days later, still going back to that house to drink, I found myself going to lunch just a little bit earlier and having a few more drinks. And pretty soon I would say the hell with lunch and I'd go back to work. And then a few days after that, I found myself going to lunch a lot earlier, having a lot of drinks, and then I would say the hell with lunch and the hell with going back to work. And it hit me just that fast. And I did that kind of drinking all the way through the month of January. And on February the 1st, I walked into my office and the phone was already ringing and I was the only one there. And I picked it up and it was my boss calling from Dearborn And he proceeded to tell me that I had a drinking problem. And I had 30 days to do something about it or it could be grounds for termination. And I told that man in no uncertain terms that nobody that far away that only saw me once, maybe twice a year, could call me on a telephone and tell me I had a drinking problem, let alone threaten to fire me over it. 
and I hung up on him. By that time, my secretary had arrived, and I told her I'd be back in a few minutes, and she knew that could be anything from a half hour to a half a day. And as I went and got in my car in the parking lot, it it was uh, ironic, but an acquaintance of mine at the Santa Ana Elks Lodge had saw fit a few weeks before to let me know that he had taken over a cocktail lounge not far from my office that normally opened at 10 in the morning, but he was going to start opening about 6 or 6.30, should I ever have a need to come by. And that's exactly where I was headed, down to see Harry. And as I was driving down to Harry's place, it suddenly occurred to me that my very best friend, alcohol, had just turned on me. The very thing that had helped me put up with that woman, raise those kids, work in that corporate structure and put up with them. And if you don't know who them are, you may be al- may not be alcoholic because we drank at them for a long time. The very thing that had helped me do all of that had just turned on me and I couldn't handle it. When I got in the, down to Harry's, I went in and sat down and Harry gave me a drink and I proceeded to tell Harry what my boss had called and said to me. Now, Harry's version of my pressures and my responsibilities and my accomplishments was so much better than my boss's version, I just sat and listened to Harry all day. I didn't have to go back to that office and put up with that crap. But I had to go back the next morning. And I knew the heat was on. And I knew that they'd be calling and checking on me, so I had to alter my daily routine. And the first thing I had to do was the very hardest. I had to cut my lunch hours from four hours down to two. But we do what we have to when that heat's on. And I did that kind of controlled drinking all the way through the month of February. March came, nothing happened. I didn't get fired. I didn't even get any threatening phone calls. And in my sick mind, I got the idea that if you worked for a company as big as I did, if you held a position such as I, they wouldn't dare fire you over alcohol unless you admitted to somebody you had a drinking problem. So all I had to do was just make sure I never told anybody that drinking was a problem in my life. And I loosened up. And about midway into March, I came back from lunch one day and my private line rang and it was a dear friend of mine whose office was down the hall. And he asked me if I'd step down there and chat with him a minute because he ran a different division than I did, but we always talked together. And I walked down to Ray's office, and as I walked in, he stood up and he looked at me and he said, Chuck, I just came back from Dearborn and they're talking about you. And if you don't do something about your drinking and do it fast, they're going to fire you. They don't care how fast you've progressed. They don't care how much you've done for the company. They don't even care how much potential you may have left. They can't afford to have you around anymore. And I looked at my friend and I told him in no uncertain terms to mind his own damn business. And if he was concerned about people with drinking problems, he had enough of them in his own division and he wouldn't have to leave his office to find one. And I walked out and I slammed the door. When I got home that night, something very strange happened because... I told my then wife what Ray had said to me that day. But I didn't see fit to tell her that my own boss had called me six weeks prior and had given me a 30-day ultimatum. 
And she looked up at me that night with the saddest eyes I had ever seen on her face. And she said, but you don't drink that much. Now standing there, she may not have known that I came back to that house every morning and would drink before I'd go into the office. And she might not have known that I took anywhere from two to four hours to sit at the club every day to drink lunch. And she might not have had any idea that I didn't work until seven o'clock every night, but I would leave my office about four, and I would go to one of my favorite two watering holes, and I would sit there and drink until seven, and when I got home and passed out in my chair, it wasn't from a bad day at the office. But standing there that night, she knew she was going through my second 502 with me, or drunk driving, as you call it. And I had gotten the last one about ten months prior. And I had been on my way to Santa Ana High School to see my son run in a CIF track meet. And I totally blacked out and ran a main boulevard stop in downtown Santa Ana. And when the police came, they handcuffed me and they hauled me into jail. And they found that 1 o'clock in the afternoon I had a .36 blood alcohol content. And she knew that. She knew that night when I got out of... Out of jail, I called my insurance broker and I told him that that afternoon I had hit a tree and wrecked my car rather badly. And the next morning, my friend came by my office and he closed my door and he looked at me and he said, Chuck, you didn't hit a tree, you hit a woman. And she knew that. She knew that previous Christmas when we were at the Elks to have Christmas dinner, just as they sat the food on the table, I yanked her out of her chair And I said, I'm not having dinner at this club with all these phonies. And there was a prominent attorney across the table from me, and I looked at him and I said, and you're the biggest phony in the room. If a person doesn't have money, property, or prestige, you won't represent them. And I looked at his wife, and I said, I don't know how you have been, you've stayed with this greedy, you know what, for 25 years. And I drugged my wife out of that club. I'm happy to tell you that over the years, uh, I tried to make amends to that man. And one Tuesday night, I went up to him to make amends, told him what happened. He said, Chuck, I was so drunk that night, I don't remember a thing you ever said. (laughs) But my sponsor and I had made 12 step calls on four of his brothers, and they all are still sober in AA. She also knew standing there that night that the nights that she shared with me later, the nights in my house that had just become too quiet. And she and the kids would come looking for me and they'd inevitably find me in my study with a shotgun to my stomach or a pistol in my mouth fully loaded with the hammer pulled back and my finger on the trigger mumbling some kind of a prayer that I might be able to fire that gun so I wouldn't have to go back out there and and face life on life's terms one more day. She asked me after I'd been sober a while what I thought an alcoholic was. I said, there's a lot of definitions out there, and I just heard one the other day that said alcoholics are people who burn bridges in front of them. (laughs) And I've certainly seen that happen. I told her I had made up my own definition for an alcoholic of my type. An alcoholic of my type is a person that drinks to solve problems that are caused by drinking. 
She said, if that's the case, you've been an alcoholic for over four years because for over four years I was sitting in bars drinking trying to solve problems that were caused because I was sitting in bars drinking. But that night she said the only thing she could possibly say to me because if she had have admitted that she knew I drank that much, she would have also been admitting that she was as sick, if not sicker, than I was for staying there all those years watching me kill myself one day at a time. I couldn't go back to that house and drink anymore. And I knew the heat was really on, so the next day I did another first in my life. I stopped at a liquor store. And I knew the owner of that store, but I had no idea he would be there that early in the morning. And when I walked in, he was behind the counter, and there was no way I could leave that store without a bottle. And I walked up, and I told him I had a friend in the hospital that asked me to bring him a little bottle of vodka, but I didn't know what brand he drank. And without even looking, he reached behind him and took a bottle and put it between us. And he looked me straight in the face, and he said, Chuck, I think this will suit your friend fine. And to make it look good that morning, I got some ice and some cups and some orange juice, and I put it all in a big brown bag, and I got in my car, and I drove to my office, and I sat in the parking lot, and I drank it. A few mornings later, I was back in his store, and he was there again. But that morning, I bought a bigger bottle. And when I gave him my money, I took the cap off that bottle and I threw it in the trash. And I turned that bottle right up to my mouth. And when I got my change, I got in my car. And I was driving down Tustin Avenue, the main street connecting Santa Ana and Tustin, where my office was located at that time. And I was passing people that I did business with on a daily basis. And I could care less if they saw me with that bottle up to my mouth. Because I wasn't drinking it anymore because I liked it. I wasn't drinking it anymore because it tasted good. And I wasn't even drinking it because I wanted it. I was drinking it because I had to have it to get from over here to over there. And it was only 14 blocks. And even though I was running a multi-million dollar business, my biggest decision that I had to make every day was early in the morning... sitting in that parking lot, when I had to decide if I should drink all that bottle then or if I should save some in case something happened and I couldn't get out later in the morning to get another one. One morning I found myself holding that bottle with everything I had in me, praying to a God that I didn't even understand to just let me die in that car, to just let somebody that worked for me come to work and find me dead So I wouldn't have to go go back up those stairs one more day and face life on life's terms. Sitting in that car that morning holding that bottle, I had lost everything that was near and dear to me. I hadn't lost any money. I hadn't lost cars. I hadn't lost homes or a job yet. But the things I had lost had nothing to do with money. They had to do with my character and the things that I was taught when I was a young lad and I was coming up and it allowed me to go to one of the best schools in the world because of our character. And I was sitting in that car and the worst comprehensible demoralization that a man of my type could go through because I was sitting there with a body that wouldn't die 
And it was carrying around a mind that couldn't function. God didn't see fit for me to die in the car. He saw fit that I should go on up those stairs just a few more days. And I came back from lunch one day, and a few moments later, my boss appeared in my office, and he was there uninvited, unwanted. And I knew he wasn't there to promote me. (laughs) And I had no place to go. And he said Ray was out of town again, and we should go down to his office and talk where it would be more private. And we walked down to Ray's office, and as we walked into the office, I sat down at the desk, and as he was closing the door, he said, Chuck, why didn't you do something about your problem? And I said, what problem? And he got very angry, and he said, your damn drinking problem, man, you're drunk now, I can smell it. And I knew that man had flown all the way out to try to bluff me one more time. Because all I ever drank in the daytime was vodka, and you know you can't smell vodka. He sat at the desk across from me, and his voice mellowed, and he said, Why? Why did you make it necessary for me to come all this way to fire you? I waited through the month of February, and nothing happened. And I saw Ray in the home office, and I asked him if he would talk to you when he got back to California because I knew how much you admired and respected him, and he did, and nothing happened. And I waited into April, and I just can't wait any longer. And he opened his briefcase, and he took out some documents and laid them between us, and he, he said, these are your termination papers, and this is your stock in the company. But I want you to know that all you have to do right this minute is tell me you want help. And I have the authority to put these papers away and take you anywhere as you want to go to get it. If you're new tonight and you don't understand the insanity we refer to in our steps, I'll share mine with you. Sitting at that desk that afternoon looking at those documents, I knew that everything I had ever worked for in my life was on the line. I knew it would only be a matter of weeks that my family would leave me. It would only be a matter of weeks that I would be in total financial bankruptcy, and in my career field, that would be job suicide. And before I would admit to that man I had a problem, I pulled those papers in front of me, and I signed away everything I'd ever worked for. And looking somewhat shocked, he told me he'd meet me the next morning early so I could clean out my office and wouldn't be embarrassed in front of my staff. Evidently, I must have met him because I was told later that my car was found in my driveway with all my personal effects. And that afternoon, about 6.30, I came to and I was as coherent as I could be with as much alcohol. And I was trying to decide if I could keep an appointment I had made for that evening. And unbeknownst to me that night, but I know it tonight, something was happening And I was having what we call in Alcoholics Anonymous a moment of clarity. And what I call that moment of clarity is every alcoholic like me and you, there's a time in our life, be it ever so brief, that we have to decide if we're going to live or die. The God I understand today, there's 7.4 billion people on this ball of dirt called earth and he's busy. 
And no matter what religions we discuss, if you wanted to, the one thing they have in common is God will not mess with our will. We have a free will. And if I choose to go back out and drink and die, that's my choice. And he knew I needed help that night, and he sent my 18-year-old son out of his room, which even that was unusual in those days. And he came up to my chair in my study, and he stood there. And he looked at me. And he said to me that night, he said, Dad, you've lost your job. And next to your family, it probably meant more to you than anything in this world. What are you going to lose next? And he just turned around and went back in his room. All of a sudden, I realized that I was nobody going nowhere. I don't know if I hit my bottom that night in that home with that family. And up until 24 hours before, I had a job that was the envy of a lot of people. But I saw my bottom, and that was good enough for me. I called my then wife into the room and I asked her if there was anything left to drink in the house. And she said, why? I said, there's a guy at the Elks named Jim. And Jim's in his 60s and he had gone to, been drinking ever since he was a small boy. And he went to a hospital over in Orange called Beverly Manor. And he hasn't had a drink for six months and they must have a miracle there. And I need help, but I also need a miracle and I want to go there. And she said, thank God, and she left the room and she brought me a drink. I am so grateful for that drink. If I had known it was going to be my last drink, I'd have had two. (laughs) But if she had talked me out of that drink or had she refused me that drink, she may have been interrupting my last drunk. And I may have found it necessary over the years to go back out and finish it. And I might not have been as lucky as some of you folks here tonight that have been here before, gone out and come back. And if you're brand new tonight and you've been at some meeting where you've heard somebody say or somebody from the podium make the statement that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous are always swinging or revolving, don't you believe it because that's a lie. I have several friends and acquaintances out there tonight that have been here before and they'd give anything they have left or anything they may ever get in life to be able to come back through these doors and their ego and pride just won't make it. We have 12 steps in Alcoholics Anonymous and if you you leave them in that book, you will surely die. But if you take them out and you wear them as a cloak of peace and practice them in everything you do, you'll make it. Within an hour, she had me at that. She and my son had me at that hospital, and I had never seen or heard the twelve steps to my knowledge in my life. <clears throat> but that night, I took that first step, as honest and as complete and as thorough as any human being could ever be asked to take it. Because my son got me undressed, and when my head hit the pillow, I said, "Thank God, it's all over." I don't have to get up in the morning and go back out there and lie and cheat and do all the things I've had to do because of alcohol. And I passed out, and I came to about a week and a half later. And I was strapped in that bed from my head to my toes. And and when I opened my eyes, I was facing a doorway, and the first thing I saw go past my door was a rabbit about five foot two hopping down the hall. (laughs) 
And I let out a god-awful scream. And Annie, the nurse, came running into the, my room, and I told her what just went by my door, and she started laughing, and she said, But Chuck, it's Easter Sunday. <clears throat> now, I find that humorous tonight also. However, that day, when I was found myself in an institution strapped to a bed and a nurse telling me it was Easter Sunday, and the last thing I remembered laying there was locking my office to go home for Christmas, it scared the hell out of me, and I hope I never forget it as long as I live. I stayed in that hospital a long time, and a lot of things happened to save my life, but because of time, I can only touch on the couple that mean the most to me. There was an old counselor there, and I used the term old very cautiously, and I used the word counselor very cautiously because he became my number two sponsor in a sense, and he had no degrees whatsoever. He was just an old drunk trying to help other drunks. And I walked into his office one morning, and he told me I had to call my boss and tell him where I was. And I said, John, it won't do any good. He said, in that case, dummy, it won't do any harm. And I'd never been... I'd never been called dummy in my life. <clears throat> and I called my boss, and he told me he knew where I was, that somebody had already called him, and <clears throat> that he had tried to do something for me, but it didn't work. But because I called, he would give it another try. And about three days later, he called me, and he said, Chuck, I went all the way to the president of our company, and we called the hospital, and we talked to your doctor, Max Schneider, and he explained to us this thing called alcoholism, and he convinced us that if you really want to do something about your life, you've taken the first step by checking into that hospital, and for that reason, we've torn up your termination papers, and we don't care if it takes 60 days or six months. Your job and your office will be waiting for you when you're capable of coming back. It took me a long time to understand the forgiveness going on by these people, and it happened a few years after I got sober, and I was called back to Dearborn on a think tank team, and there was only 12 of us, and we were making plans for 340,000 employees and talking in the billions, and we were using a conference room that's normally for the news media because all the other conference rooms were being used, and the room was as big, if not bigger, than this one. And on the second day of this deal, the, my biggest boss's secretary came to a door way over there, and she yelled across the room. She said, Chuck, you need to come to the phone. There's a crazy man, and he won't hang up. <laughs> and I excused myself. About 20 minutes later, I came back, and my boss asked me if I had a problem at my office. And I said, no, sir, as a friend of mine in Alcoholics Anonymous that thought he might have to drink today and he wanted to talk to me. And my boss looked at me and he said, that had to have been the most important phone call you could have ever received. And I knew right then that it was okay. The other thing John did for me, he knew I couldn't leave that hospital without a sponsor. And if you're new and you don't know what a sponsor is, they're the ones that come in after the war is over and bayonet the wounded. Shame on me. John could have asked a hundred men to come take me to my first meeting, but he only asked one man. 
I had no idea who was picking me up, and I went up to the nurse's station, and Frank <clears throat> took one look at me and said, Welcome, Chuck. I've been saving a seat for you for eight and a half years. Franco Apostafiar was not only one of my oldest drinking friends, but he was my family attorney. And I saw Frank almost on a daily basis, and never once did he ever try to force me into these rooms. He took me to my very first meeting that night, the Wednesday night Laguna speaker meeting, which I'm still active in weekly when I'm in town. And after that meeting, Frank took me to an all-night coffee shop. And in that coffee shop, he practiced the ultimate principle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that ultimate principle is not me standing here talking to all you people. And it's not me or somebody like me standing at some bigger place talking to all those people. The ultimate principle of Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk talking to another drunk. That's the way this thing got started, and that's the way it is, and that's the way it will always be. One of my favorite stories in our reading is when Bob and Bill called on the third member, Bill. Bob and Bill walking down the hall, and he raised his arm shakingly, and he pointed to him and said to his wife, Those are the men who understand me. That night in that coffee shop, Frank told me his whole story. That night, he convinced me that this program would work for me too, one day at a time, if I wanted it. Because it wasn't for the people that needed it, it was for the people that wanted it. And if I decided I wanted this thing, I had to get in the program and not on the program as soon as I got out of that hospital. And if you don't know the difference of being in something or on something, you just visualize yourself on a submarine when that sucker goes under. <laughs> I finally got out of that hospital. And about six months later, in October, I pulled up in the parking lot of the Elks. And I had lunch with my sponsor and grand sponsor and others every day. And something strange happened because when I pulled into that parking lot, all of a sudden I, I took my coat and tie off and I never did that on a work day. And when I got out of that car, I felt like I was that far off the ground. And I walked up to that lodge or that club and it wasn't any further than that door and it seemed like it took me 15, 20 minutes to make it. And I went in that day and I sat and there was Bob and Bill and Frank and John and I have no idea what was said at that lunch and I don't even know if I ate or not. And I went back to my office and my secretary shared with me months later that <clears throat> I walked into my office and my phone had five lines on it and the normal practice is those lines are full all day with calls going out all over the country or calls coming in. And she said, for four solid hours, I didn't get one phone call and I didn't make one phone call. And that night when I walked home, got home and I walked in the door, my son was yelling something at his mother and he looked and yelled something at me. And I felt my feet come down and touch the carpet and I walked down the hall into my study and I closed the door and I sat in my chair and I cried as hard as I have ever cried in my life. Because I knew I had spent the day with God and everything was going to be okay in my life. I knew sitting there that night through the tears that I wasn't somebody bad trying to get good. I was somebody sick trying to get well. 
And it occurred to me what Chuck was saying all that time, that in order to make this thing work, we had to treat our lives like an onion and we had to peel it and we had to uncover, discover, and discard because we're only as sick as our secrets. We have to get rid of all those secrets, even that worst one back behind that belly button that that little pygmy's holding on to that you swear you're going to take to your grave. And I thought about the fourth and fifth step, how, how wonderful that is for an alcoholic like us because it's like an artist that has this big clump of clay or marble or whatever and they can envision what's there. And they take away what doesn't belong there. And that's what that fourth and fifth step does to our lives. It removes that garbage that doesn't belong there and the real us is there. And I also realized that night that going to a lot of meetings was no excuse for not working the program. And I realized that night that this thing is a daily surrender. Yesterday's surrender won't work today and today's surrender won't work tomorrow. And I'd like to tell you that from that night on my life was just absolutely perfect, but that wouldn't be true. I ended up with more problems than I ever had drunk, but they were a better class of problems. <laughs> that son, or that daughter, one of my daughters, my baby, got into a drinking problem up in Ukiah. And my life was saved because two weeks before I was speaking in Santa Barbara, and normally I'd go up there and just bust the doors down. But I was speaking in Santa Barbara, and they had a little participation before the meeting, and, and the last person to talk was a young man that rolled up to the podium in his wheelchair, and he reached up and he got the mic, and he wanted to thank the group for being so kind to him over the years. And he said, for those of you who don't know me, he said, I wasn't born in this chair. Several years ago, I was in a truck accident, and I rolled over, and I was out there for hours, and when they came and got me, my spine had been severed, and I ended up in this wheelchair, and you would think that that would keep me from drinking, but for a couple of years, I was living with my mother, and I would be on the sofa, passed out or drunk when she'd come home for years, and one day, she came home in the middle of the day, which was very uncommon for her, and she went into my room, and she packed a little bag, and she got me in my wheelchair, and she sat the bag in my lap, and she rolled me out on the street on the sidewalk. And with tears running down her eyes, she looked at me and she said, I never want to see you again as long as you live. And she walked back in the house and he said, I want you to know I have not had a drink since that day. And we're moving my wife and I to Oregon to take care of my mother. And I understood that and I understood that there was nothing I could do for my daughter and I called a school teacher friend of mine in the program, and she went to the jail and talked to my daughter, and she hasn't had a drink for over 20-some-odd years. That son, who was 18 at the time, became 22. And I was uh, speaking at a meeting, and it was a hospital, and the phone rang right in the middle of my talk, and they interrupted me, and they said it was urgent. And I went to the phone, and it was a deputy sheriff friend of mine who told me that my son had been arrested on several felonies but if I would come down to the jail right away before he got off duty, he would let me bring him home. And I got down to that jail, and I was as scared as I'd ever been in my life. And I got my son, and I took him home. And 
I didn't leave for three days and Wednesday came and I told his mother I had to get to my Wednesday night meeting and he heard me and he came out and he said, Dad, can, can I go along just for the ride? And his mother in her wisdom that night said, why don't you two go ahead and I'll just stay home tonight. And all these years I'd been going to meetings and my family would say, why do you have to go to so many meetings? Why do you have to do we have to become alcoholic to get your attention? And I sometimes felt a little guilty about it. But that night, driving to Laguna, going down the canyon, I shared things with that young man I'd never shared with anybody in my life. And I told him I was sorry about all the track meets I missed and all the ball games I never got to. But I thought because I took care of him and his sister so well in life, one day he would become 21 and we could sit and drink and become buddies and pals. But because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I I didn't think and hope that that would never happen. And we got down to Laguna and they had their normal 200 plus people. And when they asked for uh, newcomers, my son stood up and said, my name's Chuck and I'm an alcoholic and a full-blown drug addict. And when he sat down, he put his arms around my neck and he said, Dad, I want what you've got. Now, he didn't work the program as well as I thought he did, so I ran to Al-Anon and they saved me. (laughs) I have not shared this from the podium. I reached a turning point in my life. I had been estranged from their mother for 14 years. And I couldn't leave her because she was older than I and had had a stroke. And it was not in my character or makeup to abandon her in a financial way of any type. And I'd asked her for a divorce several times and, and she just would not tolerate or discuss it. But I did convince her that we should sell our big home and I bought her a townhouse and a car, and she had access to everything I owned, but she wouldn't talk about a divorce, and at the time it didn't matter. And about five years ago, I went into Nordstrom's to buy a shirt, a French cuff shirt, because my grandson was getting married and I didn't want to wear tucks, and I wanted to wear a dark blue suit and French cuffs, and this lady came up to me and she had on dark stockings and a a Scottish plaid short skirt and a white blouse and a yellow sweater around her. And she was blonde and she had the most bubbling personality I'd ever seen. And I was just smitten right away. And I was able to finagle her to have coffee with me. And I found out that she was only working there because her husband of 40 years had died of cancer a couple a year and a half before. And he was 20 years older than her and They'd been married that long length of time. And she met me for months just having coffee and yogurt. And she got to know me and I got to know her and had no idea where she came from or what her life was like. And one day we were in a parking lot and I knew I was going to kiss her, but I didn't know she was going to kiss me back. And there was no turning around from then on because we had become best of friends and we became lovers and That wasn't enough because of her upbringing and her Irish Catholic standards. I wanted to fulfill a dream of mine, and that was to be with somebody I could love unconditionally. 
And I had the turning point of my life where I had to make a decision. And I had to go talk to that wife and explain to her that we needed to go forward. And she shocked me because without any argument, she looked at me and she said, I understand. It's time. And it took a long time to finalize that situation. But last August 3rd, I married a lady that's the most beautiful woman in the world and I adore her to no end and she's my best friend today. And we were both in our 60s and I wasn't looking and she wasn't looking. We just, God just put us in each other's life. And I have never been as happy as I am today. For 14 years I lived a life of darkness because I had to stay on the dark side of the street because of the way I was situated, a bachelor husband, but The minute I got married, my kids were there, my sponsor was there, we got married in a little white chapel in Corona Del Mar, and it was just like the sky opened, and I got on the sunny side of the street, and I've been there ever since. I've never been so happy. If I wanted to drink again tonight, the first thing I'd have to do is try to get back home and take off my clothes and put on jeans and grab a t-shirt and a tennis shoes and a jacket. And I'd have to leave my house keys and my car keys and my wallet because they don't belong to me. They belong to you. These are things you've loaned me to use on a daily basis as long as I am willing to practice our principles in everything I do to the best of my ability. Before I got the Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have sold anything I had for a bottle. Tonight, there's not one newcomer in this room It doesn't mean more to me than everything I had before I got here. And I have found out this whole thing is based on love. And I sit at the beach and I see God's face and I walk the forest area and I see God's face. But never do I see it any more clear than when I'm at a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous and looking into the faces. Chuck had a story that I like to share because... He went to Victorville every year to talk, and he would always get there. And this one year, he saw this man making coffee. And he noticed him because he had cancer of the face, and he was very noticeable. And he went back the next year, and he was making coffee in the next. And five years in a row, and one year, he got there early. And there was nobody there but just him and the man. And he got a cup of coffee, and he sat down. And he said to him, he said, I've been coming here for years and I've never seen anybody make coffee but you. He said, doesn't anybody in the group ever rotate? And he said, Chuck, I thought you knew I'm not even an alcoholic. Several years ago, I passed this building and I heard the laughter and I walked in and I sat down. It didn't take me very long to realize I was in an AA meeting and when it was over, I went up to a group of people and told them who I was and that I didn't even drink, but I'd like to come and be a part of their group and they put their arms around me and they hugged me and they kissed me on my face and they told me I was always welcome. That's what this whole deal is about is love. The difference between a full life and an empty life is people and people are love. I am very grateful that when I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous up until tonight, I've not had to go back out. And I can tell you in just one minute why that is possible for me. My favorite story is when Chuck C. went into his very first meeting in January of 1946. 
And he went to a veterans hall and the people looked so good he thought he was there on the wrong night and he turned to leave. And when he did, a little man ran up to him and he said, Mr. Mister, were you looking for something? And Chuck, with that little bit of arrogance that we all get here with, turned on him and he said, well, if it interests you, sir, I was looking for sobriety. And the little man lit up like a Christmas tree and he said, take your hat and coat off, you're in the right place. When I walked in my first door of AA, I wasn't looking for her. I wasn't looking for a better house or a better job or a better car. All I was looking for was for somebody to show me how I could go one day without drinking. And I will be ever so grateful. The only reason I'm standing here alive tonight is because a drunk took the time to come and take me to my first meeting. The only reason I'm standing here alive tonight is because a drunk took the time to sit in an all-night coffee shop and tell me his whole story. But the real reason I'm standing here alive tonight is because that old drunk took the time one night to rock me to sleep when I wanted a drink worse than anything in the world. And I'm sure as long as I keep taking the time to come back and try to give to you just a little bit of what you have so abundantly given to me, my life will always be heaped up, pressed down, and running over. I love you all very much. God bless you and thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.